ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Uh, my name is James Strong. I'm a fellow in the International Relations Department here, and I have the privilege of welcoming you to tonight's LSE Arts public screening of Dirty Wars. Uh, this is, in fact, a sneak preview of Dirty Wars. It premieres on Friday. It'll be in cinemas and online at dirtywars.org. We're very pleased to be joined tonight by the film's writer and producer, Jeremy Scahill, standing over here. Um, <laughs> Jeremy Scahill is an award-winning investigative reporter, writer, screenwriter, and film producer who has spent much of the past 15 years reporting from conflict zones all around the world. He is best known for his work, some of which we're going to see tonight, exposing the way the United States has increasingly come to rely on secret military units and private military companies to wage an almost constant war across an unlimited global battlefield, all in the name of promoting democracy and defeating terrorism. His first major book charted the rise of Blackwater to become the world's most powerful private army. He followed it with Dirty Wars, First a book, and then tonight's film. An expose of the myriad methods employed by both the Bush and Obama administrations in the course of the war on terror. I read one review that pointed out that Dirty Wars is not just another polemic against President Bush. For one thing, it makes the crucial point that the Obama administration has not only continued, but expanded many of the practices of its predecessor. But above all, this is a highly detailed meticulously researched piece of analysis by someone who has witnessed real conflict on the ground. Jeremy Scahill calls collateral damage civilian casualties. He calls high-value targeting assassination. He calls extraordinary rendition kidnapping and enhanced interrogation torture. His purpose is not to criticise for its own sake, but rather to reflect the reality of a dark side of democracy that few of us would other, otherwise get to see. We're going to have about 30 minutes for Q&A with Jeremy. Um, but before we do, I'd just like to say, uh, welcome Jeremy to LSE. Please join me in welcoming Jeremy to LSE again. Thank you. We're going to need your email address and your password. <laughs> Chap on the end there with the scarf. Hi, Jeremy. Uh, thank you very much for your work and the uh, documentary. It was brilliant. Um, fellow Wisconsinite, wish I could buy a beer, but you're in big demand. <laughs> Go Badgers. Um, so you've got this amazing story unfolding, assassination program, and another story is unfolding about the NSA. And I was wondering if you could talk about your experiences in customs. Have you been detained, like uh, David Miranda? And... Um, can you also talk about your new venture that you might be working with, Glenn Green? No, no, might. I am working on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I was in Rio de Janeiro with uh, Glenn Greenwald uh, just as David Miranda was coming back to Brazil after being detained here um, at Heathrow Airport. And um, we, were, we were sitting outside at Glenn and David's home, and I was online, and David was playing a video game in the next room. And... Um, uh, David came on to Skype, and he's sitting there playing a video game. And I said, David, are you on Skype? And he said, no. 
uh, and you know, so someone, I assume at Fort Meade or maybe here in the, you know MI6 or something, uh, was logged on to David's Skype account, and um, you know, it, it, it was it was actually kind of creepy, you know, to see it to see him pop up at that moment because he was offline and then all of a sudden he went online and he very clearly was not using his own Skype account. So they were you know, all up in his personal communications. Um, Glenn Greenwald, Laura Poitras, the filmmaker, and I are working with Pierre Omidyar, one of the founders of eBay, um, on a new media venture. And the, the mission of this organization is going to be uh, engaging in 100% adversarial journalism uh, and, and a confrontation of the state and the national security state. Um, and all of the people that we're going to bring on board are people that have a commitment uh, to holding Western powers accountable for their abuses of their own citizens' uh, civil liberties, um, but also the uh, privacy and right to life of people around the world. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm very excited about that project. There's not much that I can say beyond it, except that we're going to be bringing on board uh, very experienced uh, journalists and very and also young journalists who are hungry and and uh, want to engage in very very serious investigative uh, journalism. M- my own experience at U.S. Customs is that I'm regularly detained, and you know I live in New York and I often fly into JFK Airport, and I'm taken to a section of JFK Airport called Area Two, and uh, sometimes the questioning is is downright hilarious. You know they ask me if I own a weapon, do I know how to use a weapon. Um, uh, have I been in the U.S. military, which would be easily knowable uh, to them? Um, and when they try to ask me questions about who I meet with um, or what I'm doing in Somalia or Yemen or elsewhere, I just say that I'm going to refuse to answer those questions. And Laura Poitras has been detained, I think, well over three or four dozen times. They've seized her computers. They've taken her data cards. Uh, they did the same with David Miranda. They even took his PlayStation. Um, I hope they're enjoying playing Call of Duty and living out there. <laughs> dreams. Um, but, uh, but look, I, I, I also think, you know, I, I come into that detention center. I have never seen another white person uh, in that room. Uh, it is all people of color, most of them either Arabs or they're from uh, Pakistan. And I remember very vividly one of the times I was detained when we were doing this film, uh, we had been in Yemen and I, uh, I got pulled aside in the airport in Cairo on the way back and I had four S's on my ticket and, um, and they were trying to get me to go upstairs to some room to speak to the Muhabarat in Egypt and I said I'm not going to do it, I refuse to and I threw a conniption fit and you know, was screaming at them and saying I'm not going anywhere with you and, and, and I was playing the role of the ugly American um, and, and, and so then they, they, they let me proceed to the gate and then I, 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 I was sitting there at the gate and there was this couple uh, from Egypt, uh, and they had these three small children that were running around, and I was kind of playing around with, with one of the kids, and, um, and when I was pulled aside them when we landed, that family was, was there. And, um, and I decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go up and I'm going to track what happens to this family. So I went up to them in Area 2 of JFK, and I started talking to them, and the authorities came and they grabbed me and said, you're not allowed to speak to anyone in here. Um, and they took me away, and then I eventually, you know, I was called, they were there before me, but I was called up before them, I was questioned, I was released, and I stood outside for an hour and a half waiting to see if they would come out and they never emerged. I have no idea what happened to those people. So, you know, what happens to someone like me, I mean, I have an American passport, I'm a white male, um, you know, I, I have the ability to act like the ugly American in those cases. What do you do if you're, if you're a disempowered person who's being targeted or racially profiled? I mean, you have no actual standing there. So I, I keep that in mind when people ask to me. That the harassment that happens to me is pales in comparison to what happens to victims of actual racial profiling. <laughs> 
We should have gender balance also, so we can. Lady on the end there. Um, Hi. Hello. Uh, Sana from Amsterdam. I have a very short question. How did you get these people, like the intelligence people and the soldiers, to speak on camera? Well, if you Google you uh, immediately, of course you know who you are. Did you lie about what the, the, the narrative of the film was? Did you make up uh, No, they've all seen the script? film. They were just... They just uh, decided to, to come on, uh, on camera? No, no, no. Well, look, I, I mean, I, I, I wrote a book that resembles closely a piece of furniture. You can cut cheese on it. I use it as a coffee table. Um, and and there, are, I, I, there are many people from within the U.S. intelligence apparatus and special operations community that spoke with me, but we couldn't get any of them to agree uh, to appear on camera with the exception of one person who really was on the inside of things on the condition that we black out his face. Um, and, and not just, you know, one of the concerns we had right before our film came out, um, we asked a hacker friend to uh, see if he could remove the shading on that guy that you see blacked out. And he was able to do it in like five minutes. So we had to go in and do this whole color correct to ensure that his face was blurred and his identity was concealed. Um, and it may look like he has a very strong profile, but there were also, those guys are not stupid. They're not going to just sit there with such a strong profile so that you can use your imagination. And then digitized his voice and ensured that it couldn't be reverse engineered to reveal his actual voice. Um, people are afraid of being targeted under the Espionage Act in the United States, whistleblowers. Um, and uh, I don't lie to anyone uh, about who I am or what I do, and I don't lie about my name. And you know, anyone who's smart, if you're going to be interviewed by someone, you're going to Google who the reporter is so you can understand where they're coming from. Um, but this may be a bit of an unexpected answer to your question. Part of what happened is that uh, I wrote this book about Blackwater, the mercenary firm, and I couldn't get anyone from within that community to speak to me. Um, or the company. They issued an edict that no one was to talk to me. I do the book, and then something strange started happening. When I would go around the United States talking about it, uh, like these, these sort of large guys with tattoos would sort of be standing in the back, and they would come up to me, and this happened maybe half a dozen to ten times, uh, where, and they would come up to me at the very end after everyone had done a book signing or asked me a question or whatever, um, and would say, you know, look, I kind of think you're a piece of shit. In, in many ways, but I agree with you on this issue, and I was in this unit or that unit. And I think they sort of expected me to like sort of burn an American flag in front of them and say, down with you, you war criminal. And instead I would say, do you want to get a beer? And I ended up going out for drinks with people who worked in the special operations community. And, um, and I learned a lot from talking to them and got tips as to, as to other stories. And I think that they were mildly amused by the fact that I wasn't this grand asshole who wanted to just sort of you know, make them all seem like they were General Cali reenacting the Milai massacre every weekend. Um, and you know, I, I, part of what I try to say to people is we have to humanize uh, the people on the other end of American missiles or night raids. And I myself wasn't realizing the humanity of some of the soldiers who are tasked with doing these operations. And in getting to know them on a more personal level, I had a greater understanding of uh, the kinds of operations that they were doing, and that's part of why some of these guys talk to me. And I've seen actual conversions with some of these people where they're starting to say, I think what we're doing is at cross-purposes to the actual mission of countering terrorism. Wow, you have some tough choices here, doctor. Young lady on the end there. Thank you. My name is Hillary, and I'm a master's student. Uh, my first question is, on your voyage across Afghanistan, Yemen, Somalia, how did you deal with the language barrier to ensure that your questions did not get lost in translation or uh, misinterpreted to get the precise responses that you desired? And my second question is, 
how do you overcome the fact that you yourself are an American, you know, to, um, to look past um, this aspect and get actual objective reporting and the fact that your film is likely to cause quite an anti-American backlash in uh, a few countries. So how do you reconcile these two aspects of your identity? Thank you. As to the first part of your question, uh, you know, a, a big mistake I think a lot of journalists make if they're operating in an area where they don't speak the language, I don't speak Pashto or Dari, um, is feeling that you need to understand in real time every single thing that's being said. And a lot of times what will happen is that the journalist who doesn't speak the language will insist on what someone is saying being translated every two or three sentences, and it completely disrupts the flow of someone's thought. And it's, it's actually not an intellectually honest way of conducting an interview. You want people to tell stories in their own words in a way that there is flow, in the way that you and I are talking tonight, so that you can have a complete thought and not have to stop in a staggered way. So we did a lot of preparation with the people who were going to be translating, and oftentimes these were local journalists that we we worked with, our colleagues in these countries, and would kind of map out the architecture of of how we wanted to talk to people. And and, and the primary goal was to get them to tell their own stories in their own words. And so we we would only stop when there was a natural break in the storytelling. And whoever we were working with would give us a basic rundown of what they said. And I think it's very important as a journalist not to only rely on one translation. Um, so we would later then have uh, things professionally translated, and oftentimes there are errors, and it's not it's not because someone's trying to misinterpret or or tell you that someone said something that they didn't. It's just human error. So I think it's very important to have uh, it professionally translated later with an objective person who wasn't there on the scene. Um, as to your second question about being an American, look, um, when you're sitting down with a family and you're talking to a man whose pregnant wife was gunned down in front of him. And then he watches as bearded Americans dig the bullets out of her body, and she's pregnant, and you know now that your wife is dead. And then you get, ca- you get handcuffed yourself, put onto an aircraft, and flown to a different part of your country where you've never been before. And then you're interrogated for three days on accusations that you're a member of the Taliban when actually you were in support of an American invasion of Afghanistan because you hated the Taliban. You know, one thing that got cut out of our film that I wish hadn't is that that family, um, they were not ethnic Pashtuns. They, they uh, were a minority in their area. And I got an email two weeks ago from an American soldier who was one of the guys in the picture with that police captain, Mohammed Daoud. And he said, I just saw your film on Netflix. This is in the United States. And I can't believe that anyone would say that Daoud had anything to do with the Taliban. I knew him for three years in Afghanistan, and he was one of our best allies. Um, and and I, you know, for, for me as an American sitting in those places with people who've lost so much, I wonder sometimes, why don't they just like hack me to death? Um, because I can understand the rage there. And you know, so you, 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 we forget as journalists, we're not robots. You, know, you have to have human empathy and realize the context of what you're doing. You're asking people to relive the most horrifying thing that ever happened in their life. We don't just show up and knock on someone's door and say, oh, tell us about the night that your pregnant wife was killed. You send a letter, you send an envoy, you explain your intent, you have to figure out what imams do you need to speak to and what members of the family have to give you permission to come in. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's a huge part of doing this work is you have to understand where the other person is coming from. Gentlemen over there. Oh, hi. Um, I think I'll join everyone else in saying that that was a, a fantastic documentary. Um, 
I'm, I'm particularly intrigued by um, some of the um, actions of the United States in other areas which are not as well documented as perhaps some, somewhere like Yemen or Somalia, such as uh, Mali or um, Libya at the moment. Mm. Could you perhaps shed any light on some of the current activities going on in those areas? Yeah, that's a... You know, we had to cut whole countries out of this documentary. I mean, Mali, you saw I pinned a, a, you know, one of the push pins into Mali. Uh, you know, the, the, the U.S. has been working very closely with French uh, special operations forces. And politicians in Washington deny that the U.S. has had forces on the ground. I've talked directly with people who are involved with those operations. The U.S. has small teams of people that are trying to kill the leadership of al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb. And, uh, and it's not just Mali. It's Mali and uh, also in Mauritania. Uh, in Libya, we saw recently the, uh, the rendition of one of the individuals that the U.S. alleges was involved with the bombing of the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. And um, uh, look, I, I, I'll say this about Libya. The siege of the U.S. consulate in Benghazi had absolutely nothing to do with a movie that was made about the Prophet Muhammad. Um, there were covert actions that were taking place inside of Libya on behalf of the CIA's Special Activities Division, its paramilitary division, and the Joint Special Operations Command. And there was an undeclared war going on between certain Islamist groups and covert U.S. forces. And that was a well-coordinated attack on that consulate. And it had everything to do with a war that was not being covered in the press that was being waged. And you know, I, I, I wrote a 700-page book um, about these operations, and I don't think I even understand a full digit's worth of the story, 1%. Um, I'm sure that there are entities within the U.S. national security apparatus that the public has never even heard of. Um, and so I think we all have to be uh, humble in how we approach these stories because I think the extent of U.S. covert action is far greater than any of us understand, and it spans more than 100 countries across the globe. These forces are now in 120 countries, uh, and in some cases they're doing training some places they're doing support for counter-narcotics or interdiction of weapon supplies. And in other countries, they're in the game of hunting people. And, uh, and only when journalists or human rights groups stumble upon a story do we ever hear about it, because they'll leak every detail about the bin Laden raid that they think makes them look great. The name of this dog named Cairo that was there that should be a national hero, and bin Laden put his wife in front of it. It all turned out to be bullshit. Uh, but we know nothing or next to nothing about any of the other raids that they did that week. And so, you know, there's a, there's a very tightly controlled propaganda apparatus, and then there's a war against people who are whistleblowers or want to provide independent information. Lady right in the back. Thank you. I thought I was out of your line of sight. Uh, no? <laughs> thank you for giving me the option. Um, Mr. Jeremy, it's been uh, an extreme pleasure to see what you've tried to do or how you've tried to do. However, I come from a country which is divided and at war both internally and externally. I'm from Pakistan. I do have marks on my own body and soul, and I know what suffering is. But looking at what you've done here, forgive me, um, but I do want to know your motive as to why you're doing this. Since time immemorial, war and conflict has been a part of human nature. Looking at your film right now, it rather shatters me in a sense that you're trying to sell the suffering of people. Um, you're trying to, I'm not sure of your motivations or objectives, 
but why are you doing this? What's your objective? Are you also an American who's, who's out there for an adventure? And when you've had it, you come back into, you're coming back to your home turf? And then what's your objective? There, there should be a clear agenda or motive for, for selling the suffering of people. For me, this is suffering and pain that you're, that you're trying to sell to the world. I'm sorry you feel that way. Um, you know, we, we made this film as a nonprofit um, entity, and we want people who normally wouldn't think about the suffering of others, uh, people that live on the other side of night raids or cruise missile strikes or drone strikes, uh, for their stories to become real, particularly in an audience in the United States or in Western European countries where these policies have their origins. Um, you know, we, we made this film because we want justice for people who are victimized by these policies. Um, you know, the idea of me going back, I own that myself. Um, in fact, I, I've publicly agreed with criticisms of our film uh, from various activists about why is it that, you know, audiences in the West will uh, believe that a film's message resonates more if, they, if it's being narrated by, you know, a white man. I've, called, I've said that it's like the magic cracker syndrome. Um, and you know, but but if you if you look at the entire body of work that I've done over the course of my adult life, almost every moment has been spent trying to tell the story of people who live on the other side of America's missiles. Uh, my motivation for it is about justice. I keep in touch with every single person that we interviewed for this film, and in some cases have tried to find lawyers for the victims of bombings or raids so that they can try to sue for justice and. Uh, you know, I don't exactly, I mean, I, I understand why you're asking that question, um, but there is no part of me that is interested in making anything off of the suffering of anyone. Um, you know, I, there's all sorts of things I could do other than this, but I choose to do it because I believe in justice for people. And that's my entire motivation for being involved with any of this kind of storytelling. Chat down here at the front. Sorry, I'm making the people with the microphones walk the furthest possible distance. Hi there, my name's Tristan. Um, I just wonder what the relationship is between the book and the film. Were you doing the research for the book and making the film simultaneously, or did you kind of get somewhere along and then think, actually, we need to make a film about this? No, no, the, the film, I mean, we were... We weren't even sure that we were going to make a film. I mean, initially, the way that this project started is that um, I, I was going to do an investigation of the new administration's counterterrorism policy, of the Obama administration's counterterrorism policy. And if you remember, uh, President Obama sort of campaigned on a contradictory principle. He said, well, I'm going to draw down forces in, Afghanistan, in Iraq, and I want to end the war there. Uh, although, and this is parenthetical, uh, the plan that he implemented in Iraq was the exact plan on Bush's desk the day that he left office. There was no literally no difference at all between what Obama did and what Bush would have done in a third term in Iraq. Um, but then in Afghanistan, he was going to surge forces. And he started to uh, select individuals to run his war in Afghanistan who had their history in the world of covert operations. And so initially our idea was to do maybe a three to five part series of half hour uh, documentary style investigative pieces about Obama's war in Afghanistan. And when we started to track who was doing the night raids and realized that it was this unit, the Joint Special Operations Command, um, and looking into them, who they were, where, they, where else they were operating, we realized it was more global in scope and that there was a film. So 
the the film is 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 about an investigation that became a book. It's not about. Uh, it wasn't ad- adapted at all. Uh, they were done almost simultaneously. In fact, they were done simultaneously. So a lot of the filming of it was in the process of doing print reporting rather than you know shooting for a classical style documentary film. Chap in the white shirt there has had his hand up for a while. Thank you. Uh, Tom Lone, uh, uh, freelance journalist. Um, both with regards to your new media venture and specifically with regards to NSA surveillance and everything else, what's, I know you said, obviously, the film concluded by saying you don't see an end to the war in terror. What's your prognosis? Well, I mean, one of the advantages of being a journalist is that you're not a politician. Um, and I wouldn't, nor would I want to ever be a politician in this current structure at all. Um, I think we've reached a point in what's called the war on terror where we're actually creating more new enemies than we are killing actual terrorists. And I say we, not because I'm in the military, but because anyone who is paying taxes uh, or in some way financially supporting these operations has some form of a moral uh, or ethical responsibility to take some ownership over the policies. Um, You know, in the U.S., of course, shamefully, we still have the death penalty. And, you know, we're an execution nation. Uh, But there was a story a few years ago that I think is telling about the times in which we're living now. There was a governor in the state of Illinois named George Ryan, and he was a very conservative Republican politician, was a major figure in backing George W. Bush. And he was totally pro-death penalty, uh, pro-execution. And Bush, of course, was the greatest executioner in American history uh, in terms of, you know, governors of states. And George Ryan issued a moratorium on the death penalty in his state. And the reason was because university students uh, worked on a project where they proved that uh, people were being put to death that were actually innocent. Um, And the way they proved it was through DNA evidence. And so this conservative Republican governor, a friend and backer of George W. Bush, the execution king of American politics, uh, did that not because he had a moral opposition to the death penalty. I'm morally opposed to the death penalty. He wasn't. Or because he had somehow become a card-carrying member of Amnesty International. He did it because they, they discovered that innocent people were being put to death. I think that whether you are opposed to drone strikes or the global assassination program, or you think that it, it is potentially an effective tool to be used in countering terrorism, we have hit a point where the U.S. is actually intentionally killing people whose identities they don't know. And they're killing them on the basis of their uh, geography and their demographics. And, and, and to me, that's, that's not just an immoral policy. It's a strategically idiotic policy engaging in some form of pre-crime. So, I mean, I, I think that the U.S. should call a moratorium on its use of what's called targeted killing and do an actual assessment of who, who's been killed. My belief on a moral level is at the end of the day, we will come to a conclusion that it has been counterproductive to the actual cause of national security and that we're undermining our own security in the course of pursuing uh, this war of attrition or killing our way to victory. And I think that, unfortunately, that's the policy that President Obama has endorsed. Um, but I don't, I don't have like a 10-point plan or something. Uh, and part of the reason we ended this film on a series of questions is so that we would spur debate and discussion. I have much more faith in the average person's ability to come up with ideas than I do in my own. <laughs> and, um, and 10 years ago, I may have given you a different answer, but I, I don't have the answers to that. I have a lot of questions that I think all of us should be asking and debating collectively. Right, we've got time for one more. Um, young lady in the middle there in the black and gold top. 
Hi, uh, my name is Fozia Ahmed. Um, I just wanted to ask, um, both your book and your film are unflinching accounts of the crimes, I guess, committed by um, your heads of state. Um, by investigating the injustices um, suffered by people in their own homelands, does it, do you feel some disconnect from your own? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I, I've had experiences going back to the 1990s where you, it's like reverse culture shock. You know, you come back into the land of uh, big corporations and shopping malls and, you know, it's, it, you're not seeing people with guns on the street and, you know, cafes blowing up and, uh, and no one seems to, to care. You know, there, there, there was this moment um, a few months ago where there was this trial in the United States of a young woman named Jody Arias. And Jody Arias was this young white woman uh, who was a convert to being a Mormon. And she uh, had this insane sort of sexual relationship with this guy who also was a Mormon. And then she end, ends up you know, killing him in the shower and, uh, and denying that she had done it. It was this sort of salacious story involving this you know, woman who was being portrayed as kind of a sexy criminal. And every media outlet in the U.S. deployed like you know, 40 correspondents. It was like, you know, uh, Wolf Blitzer from CNN. All these people are there, and they're looking at... They, have, they brought in psychologists to analyze her body language, and they were... Someone was on, in the corner with someone else's family, and then the other family. And it was like wall-to-wall coverage. There was no other news on television in the U.S. You could surf through a thousand channels, and all you saw was the Jody Arias trial. That week, when her verdict came down... Not that you care, but she was found guilty... That week, CNN quietly announced that they were closing uh, their Baghdad bureau. Washing their hands of it, it's done. Uh, you know, the U.S. was, of course, deeply involved with the state of affairs that now exists in Iraq, where there's suicide bombings every day, where very militant groups have, had, have gotten a foothold in a way they never used to, and yet major U.S. media organizations are sort of fleeing the scene. Um, I, 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 I sit there and watch cable news in my country and feel a sense of deep shame that we seem to have no moral stake in following up on the repercussions of our actions. So, yes, to that extent, I feel totally disconnected. But I also am not a nationalist. Uh, America is a very nationalistic country. Um, I'm not a nationalist. I, I don't believe that American lives are worth more than non-American lives. And I find a lot of hope in the struggle of other people around the world. The, the journalist in our film, Abdullah Haider Shia, was released a few months ago um, from prison. He still is not free. He's under a sort of default form of, uh, of house arrest. He can't leave the capital of Sana'a, and he can't have a passport. Um, you know, but I, I, I look oftentimes outside the borders of the United States, and my biggest heroes are unfamous journalists from countries like Somalia or Kenya or Yemen or Mexico where journalists are murdered every week by narco cartels. Um, you know, my life relative to the life of most of my colleagues is a very easy one, and I always remember that, and, and those are the people that are my, you know, are my heroes. Thank you, folks. That's a, that's a good note for us to end on. Now, Jeremy's got about 15 minutes or so that he's going to be here to sign copies of his book. A little if bit he, longer. If you, I mean, little, little I bit just, longer. I just have to be somewhere uh, sure. later, so I'm sorry. Otherwise, I'd love yeah. to hang around and talk with people. Um, so if you have a copy that you'd like signed, please come down and queue at the bottom. There is a bookstore outside if you'd like to get one, uh, and you can bring it back in. Otherwise, thank you very much. Thank you, Jeremy, for coming. Thank you for a fascinating film. Uh, please thank take you. it through the back. Thank you.